Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Today's show is brought to you by the award-winning NordVPN. I've been using Nord for years now because it secures my internet traffic and keeps my data private, especially when traveling or on public Wi-Fi. NordVPN has servers in 60 countries, does not log your data, unlocks Netflix and other geographic restrictions on entertainment content, and has a 30-day money-back guarantee. To get the best deal on a subscription, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com slash NordVPN or use the promo code BT future. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Jesse Draper. She's the founding partner at Halogen Ventures. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm pumped to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing at Halogen Ventures, and to be fair, I've pretty much seen majority of the stuff that you've done uh, in your past. So maybe before we get into Halogen, Let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in um, Northern California in kind of the heart of Silicon Valley before it was this Hollywoodized version of (laughs) um, the, you know, suburb that I grew up. And, um, you know, I was, I'm a fourth generation investor. I'm the first female in the line. Very cool. But, um, you know, growing up, I uh, really, truly, all I knew was, uh, technology and startups and how that worked. And I grew up around incredible entrepreneurs, um, but I didn't think I could be one of them how come? because I did not see, you know, I just didn't see any women around me um, sure. who were running companies. So I saw a lot of incredible men and I love men, um, but I just, um, I was frustrated by that. And so I didn't think I could go into technology. Interesting. Um, so I, um, you know, when I think back and it's like, you know, you're a little kid and you have role models and I would look up and I was like, who are my role models? And of course my mom and dad are role models. My mom raised four children and, uh, and then my, um, but I realized my aunt who was a very well-known actress in the eighties, her name was Polly Draper. She was on a show called 30 something. That's actually coming back on Netflix soon, which is cool. That's awesome. Um, she, yeah, it's fun. She, um, I was like, oh, that's what women do. Cause that was someone close to me. I was like a little, you know, child who I was like, oh, that's like, she's working. Um, and that, so I was, I thought being an actress was a traditional job for a woman, which is hilarious now looking back. Sure. And so I kind of went into entertainment because I thought, oh, well, that's what I understand a woman can do. Um, Ultimately, I had great, I, I actually feel like I had great success as an actress, considering how difficult that profession is. Um, I was on a Nickelodeon show, I was in quite a few movies. And um, the, uh, and through that, I, I started realizing, okay, I'm auditioning, I'm taking all this time to audition, you know, I go to these cattle calls, I wait five hours, they don't even ask their name, it's like brutal. Um, and, 
And I was like, you know, I can be a lot more productive. And then I had, you know, my dad in my ear constantly being like, how are you going to make this a business? And, you know, I was just really, you know, uh, brought up to think that way and think as an entrepreneur. So I ultimately combined these two kind of passions of mine and created uh, what I believe was the first technology talk show um, in 2008. And it was silly and fun. And, you know, I do think it was the first because I had incredible guests like Eric Schmidt, former CEO mm-hmm. of Google, and no one cared. And it was, <laughs> it was so amazing. early in the Google days. <laughs> and it was so funny. And it was like early days of digital distribution. And um, I was trying to figure out the business model because no one had quite figured it out. We did deals with like Mashable and Forbes and wow. um, got the, the show out there wherever we possibly could. Um, started getting millions of views on video screens, like in airports and hotels and fast food restaurants. I mean, any screen I could find, I would do a distribution deal with them. Um, And then we ultimately took it to television. We're nominated for an Emmy. Um, And through that show for the first two seasons, I was interviewing great entrepreneurs, um, but they were all men. And so I was like, you know, I'm realizing there's a major issue here, which is like one women like the little girl in me need to see women running technology companies. And so I made an initiative after two seasons to interview women in technology. And I put out this like that signal and they came in flocks. It was crazy. And I'd be pitched just all the time. Like Jesse's looking for women in tech. And I'm forever grateful to Jen Hyman from Rent the Runway and Rebecca Minkoff and um, uh, the Guilt Group girls because they made it okay for Sheryl Sandberg to come on my show. She came on before she'd even written Lean In. um, And that made it okay for then Jessica Alba and Mark Cuban. And the show just took off. Um, And then we moved to TV. So, yeah. So I kind of went through that and I realized I could help with this women issue in two ways. And so sometimes companies would pitch the show and I'd say, Hey, you're too early for the show. Love what you're doing. Like, can I write you just a $5,000 check, a thousand dollar check, literally like whatever I could afford at the time. I didn't have, you know, very much capital. Um, and, uh, I used, uh, you know, that track record actually went really well for me. I had a 25 X return in less than 18 months on the secondary market. And I used that, uh, track record then to raise my first fund and we're now on our second fund yes, and um, we have about 55 companies and they all, they all have uh, a female in the founding team. We have three male CEOs. So I'm always like, we love men. There just have to, have to be women in the executive team. No, I, I think that makes like a ton of sense, right? It would be probably really tricky to find like an entire female team. I'm sure there's out there and like that's that's awesome but if you just try to focus on that it's probably really difficult right yeah yeah fair and so so halogen was basically that was there you just started handing out five ten like small amounts of money which transitioned into halogen ventures is that correct I mean, yeah, I was just handing it to whoever walked right, in my right. door. I was just like, here's a thousand dollars. I don't even care um, if you have a business idea. Just figure it out. <laughs> um, no, don't bother showing me your deck. Um, no, I, yeah, like I would just start seeing these great companies. And when they kind of blew my mind in different ways, like 
I saw the skim when they only had 5,000 email addresses. And now, you know, they have 7 million daily readers. I saw um, Carbon 38, which is now an international athleisure marketplace that Foot Locker owns a piece of. um, And these companies and two of those companies, you know, I wrote these little checks to and two sold last year for a hundred million dollars. Congrats. That's huge. And, um, Thank you. It It is huge. And it's, you know, it's such a gamble. I think when people today, I kind of feel like everyone wants to um, invest and I encourage everyone to invest and learn how to invest. Uh, but I think when you're in venture, like the best thing you can do is invest in a fund if you're learning, because when you are making these angel investments, you have to assume a certain percentage is going to go under because if it's early stage venture capital, like the riskiest asset class and it's literal gambling like you're meeting people you do as much diligence as you can you know you take a look at their deck you do a light background check but i have seen the coolest companies come out of prison so you know (laughs) you can only do so much diligence on an early stage company and um, we have a great formula now, but you really, you know, we ask for like, we have like a hundred item checklist, but I think when you think about investing, you should be like, I want to invest this much. And if you do want to do private uh, market investing, you should divide that by, you know, 10 or 20 and do smaller investments and see how those go. And then they're always going to come back and ask you for more. So you might divide that in half again um, and think, okay, well, what if I have to follow on? And so you look at it as your own little fund because you don't want to throw it all into just one business because it's like, it's like if your friend starts a restaurant, like, do you want to invest in a restaurant? If you do a quick Google on a restaurant, you know that that is like the worst investment you could ever make. Um, But if your friend's like, hey, I'm starting a restaurant group, they're going to launch like five to 10 restaurants. Like that's a much better bet because it's less likely that they'll all go under. Smart possible yeah no that that's actually interesting and i'm glad you called it gambling because i've said that to other investors before and they get almost so offended by that it's like well it doesn't matter how like you can have the best process in the world but you're still basically taking a complete chance on it which is also called gambling and i don't even think that yeah it's totally gambling and it's not i don't mean that in a negative way though right like you're basically yeah. taking a chance on somebody like you believe in them enough to give them money. Sure. You can call it gambling, taking chance, whatever you want, but like you are doing that. And it's amazing that you address that. I love that. Well, yeah, because you look at it like, here's what we do. I'm going to pretend it's an art. I'm going to pretend I'm an <laughs> expert. I'm going to pretend all these things. And like, I do have a great track record. We've had many exits. Sure. We returned a lot of money, but it's, um, we haven't returned all the money yet. We're getting there. We're very close. Um, but, um, the, you know, it's a 10 year lifespan just for the record. Um, but you look at it, I'm going to pretend I'm this like perfect artist. I think the VCs who like pretend they know exactly how to pick all the winners, like that's probably the worst VC to invest in. Like (laughs) you, you have to look at it and say, okay, here's like, now we have 55 companies. So I do have some good pattern recognition in terms of founder behavior and just numbers and EBITDA and how quickly a company might scale in certain verticals. But I'll go through our like 100 item diligence checklist. Then my lawyer goes through another 100 items. And then at the end of the day, I'm literally like, do I feel good about this? Yeah, I feel good about this. Like Interesting. you, because at the end of the day, it's a gut check. If you have a bad feeling about this person, even if all the numbers check out, like, why would you do that deal? 
Fair. Yeah. No, I 100% agree with you, but I think a lot of people still make that deal. Or, or try and then to. they end up in a lawsuit with uh, the founder or something. I don't know. Who knows? A lot of weird things happen. Sure. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into Halogen Ventures, though. You, you guys may invest in kind of female-focused companies, C-level kind of type things. But and you mentioned this 100 uh, checklist uh, or item checklist. But what else do you kind of look for? Is there certain verticals that these companies need to be in? Or, or what do you guys look for? I feel like what if I was like, we only invest in like companies that help animals. I wonder if that's a vertical. Like I feel like today everyone has some sort of vertical they're focused on. We do focus on different industries, but um, we are consumer technology as a whole. And I'm just like, it's funny. I've seen, you've probably seen a lot too, just in terms of, what niches people are focused on. And I do think it's really important to be focused even as a consumer tech investor. Like people call me, they're like, Jesse's looking for women and she's looking for consumer technology. Um, So people know what to send me. But Uh then there's people who the majority of investors will say like, I'm industry agnostic, I'm stage agnostic. And to me, that's not a strategy because one, I co-invest with hundreds of investors. And um, I'm never going to think of you if you say that, because I'm going to be like, do you do hardware? I can't remember. And then I just kind of will move on to the funds I know have a focus, you know, but um, so I, so we do consumer tech and then within consumer technology, that was probably like more of an answer than you needed, but um, we do within consumer tech, I think as a venture capitalist, you have to look 10 years out. And so we have like a couple of verticals within consumer tech that based on the data we've collected over the last few years, we see huge opportunity in those 10 years. And that's data we collect, you know, from bankers or uh, just trends in the ecosystem that we've collected based on the deal flow we see. Um, and um, we, cause you know, you have to think 10 years out in 10 years, we want to sell it for a billion dollars. What do we need in 10 years? It's very different from what we need tomorrow. Right. Sure. So you're, are you looking to always sell? Would you potentially think of IPO or does it really depend on the company? I would love an IPO. I do see some in our portfolio that will probably go public. Okay. Um, that's much less likely. Like if you look at the statistics, it's just much less likely. So it's, it's um, you know, I, I wish I had, I know one data point that, um, but I kind of look at it within funds. Like I think, you know, people have way less IPOs than they do have acquisitions. Yeah. Okay. Fair by enough. like, you know, one to 40 basically. No, that, that makes sense. So for people that maybe don't understand the 10 year life cycle, do you want to maybe just quickly cover that? Cause I, I think it's actually really interesting and, and I'm curious to also get your take on that. Yeah, it's, um, you know, you invest in a fund. So basically I raise a pool of capital from a whole bunch of investors and they've given me, um, you know, the rights and permission and trust me with it to essentially choose the best deals and invest. Um, and that is a typically it's a seven to 10 year lockup, um, meaning your money, you won't see any money for seven to 10 years. Right. Um, the good news is in consumer 
we are seeing exits more like four to five years out, which is great. Uh, but you should just assume you will get a return, but it will be down the road. However, as, as a fund manager, like we've distributed capital over just like two years and you can do that. You can choose to hold on to it and reinvest it, or you can um, distribute it. We still feel like we're proving ourselves. So we want to distribute any dollar we make to our investors. Um, and uh, so there's different ways of going about that. Okay. Interesting. No, that's, that that's very cool. Right. And I think the other thing too, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me that the industry of startups now is kind of mature to the point where, sure, companies still get bought after a year or two, but it usually takes seven to 10 years for a company to make, to, to get to a point where they can be acquired for hundreds of millions or, or billions of dollars. Is that fair to say, or is that too much of a generalization? No, I think that's totally fair to say. And the reason we have a seven to 10 year lockup is exactly what you said. It takes that long to grow a billion dollar business. And when I think about returning capital to my investors, like when we map it out and put together the model, we have to invest in billion dollar markets. And we hope that many of them will sell for a billion dollars. And, um, you know, I don't discredit or discount hundred million dollar markets, but, um, if you plan for the billion dollar markets, you'll have some nice, you know, $500 million exits in there too. Um, but the return needs to be great enough that, uh, you can return the capital many times over in order to, you know, make a return to all of your investors. And so, uh, you need to think in billion dollar terms versus like, Oh, this will be a nice $5 million business. Um, that's not something that a venture capitalist would be interested in investing in because the model for return isn't, uh, it doesn't work. Right. Interesting. So at what stage do you guys like to put money in? It probably really depends, but I'm what, where's your kind of sweet spot? Early. We are risky, early capital investors. We sometimes are the first institutional oh, money in. We get in sometimes at a $3 million valuation. We like to see a product because it's consumer focused. I do love seeing like a million dollars of revenue or some kind of traction, okay. but sometimes it's a hardware company and they need capital to even get their product off the ground. And so we have invested pre-product. Um, for us, that's like the best model for return. So um, we do that and that's uh, that's what's worked for us. Interesting. So. So just to be clear, they don't need to be generating revenue for you guys to invest. We, I like a million sure. in revenue, okay, but yeah. yes, you know, there's certain cases like we had a company that was a hardware business that, um, you know, they had the first MVP, but they couldn't, um, Got you. they were still basically pre-product and they couldn't order the first shipment to sell. And, you know, we had to you know, I thought it was a really unique opportunity, really, really great company, never seen one before. And um, so that was, uh, you know, something like a, a, like a scenario and they had data proving there was a need, um, you know, so just as long as we can see some traction, it doesn't ne necessarily have to translate to dollars, especially if it's like disruptive and something unique. It's not always like cut and dry, like a fashion business. Right. No. And why I ask it again is I find like a lot of 
venture capitalists will say, yeah, we're early stage, but you need to have like half a million dollars or 500 and we won't even yeah. touch you unless you have that kind of money. That's what, so like for you guys to be, I think you guys potentially get better opportunities because of you're willing to basically really gamble on those kind of early ideas, right? Yeah. It's actually probably more fun we, um, for you guys too. Oh, it's so fun. And also you're one of the first investors in. And so you're kind of along for the full ride and the yeah. full life cycle. And you're one of their first calls, regardless of how big they get, because you were their first network and um, they ha you've seen the whole um, trek. So yeah, it's very fun. I mean, I feel so grateful to do what I do. I think it's an amazing you're just constantly mind blown by the ideas people are coming up with. And you're like, wow, I didn't even know that was possible. You know, it's like, there's just um, so many incredible technologies coming out daily. Sure. No, hundred percent agree. So do you guys try to stay West coast? Are you kind of region agnostic or, or where do you guys like to invest? We love to invest all across the country. Okay. I'd say the majority of our deals currently are in San Francisco, LA, and New York. But we have one in Chicago, Atlanta, Seattle, um, and we're um, we're actually diving more into uh, cities across the country um, as our deal flow grows and grows and grows. So we are, and women are starting companies everywhere. So it's been really great. The cool thing about investing in women as like our um, thesis um, as a moneymaker, uh, it makes an impact, but it's actually like there's data that says, you know, women raise half as much money and double the return. Um, we we get a really interesting um, pool of entrepreneurs and it's off of this traditional Silicon Valley path um, of the Stanford, Harvard grad graduate. It's like we look for women and because we looked for women, we have over 50% minority-led companies now yeah. just because we were looking for the best businesses. And, um, you know, when you go off of the traditional path, you find a new magic pool of treasure. Sure. Yeah. No, I 100% I agree. I, I think it, it's – well, I, I guess – I don't know how to word this question, like, properly, but is it getting better for, for women in technology? <laughs> I think it's getting better. You know, the data I see that I'm excited about, it's getting better. It's not there. There's not enough venture dollars going to women. There's sure. not enough female investors too. Um, and I think that that makes a difference. And then the biggest issue is really at the LP or the limited partner level. So those would be my investors, okay. the institutional investors, like the pension funds and the endowments. Those are all run by um, significantly older gentlemen who uh, in some cases had never seen a woman before when I walked into their offices running a company. And so there's things like that where it's like, that's really where it needs to change. And then I think um, we'll see a little better sort of equality between women and men in terms of business and wealth. Um, but uh, it's getting better. I think what what I love is we're seeing firsthand incredible data on women. We're seeing that they raise less money um, and they're profitable faster. We're seeing that um, diverse teams literally breed success. 
uh, Pitch Books just did a study about how women actually exit a year earlier than um, male-run teams. Um, and for me, it's really about diversity of all sorts. You know, I think we, um, you just, I don't know, we're very inclusive. I like to make sure we have well-balanced teams. If I have an all-female board, I want to make sure we add a qualified male. You know, I think we need each other. And so I think that's just where I look at it. And I want down the road for women to not only, you know, create wealth and be the billionaires of the future, but also like invest in women because there's still so much opportunity there from breast pump companies to beyond that um, is not getting the funding. It should because they're multi-billion dollar opportunities. No, I a hundred percent agree. And, and sometimes like just obviously being a male myself, like it would be really hard for me to create like a female focused product without at least without having, a woman. Yeah. And like, so it always blew me away how some companies in the past had, were basically building these female products without even having a female involved. And it was just like, like, what are you guys doing? Right. I mean, the, the worst industry truly for that, that doesn't make any sense to me is fashion. Sure. You know, women make 80% of purchasing decisions in households and like specifically in fashion. It's like we know women shop more than men do sure. just in general, but men run all of the biggest fashion companies. So I think that's really interesting. And some of the wealthiest uh, individual men are in the fashion business. Um, so I think that's sort of interesting and can be disrupted. And I think there's big opportunity there. Um, and among other industries. No, I, I 100% agree with you. I, I, I love the fact that people like yourself that are that are really trying to make like big change in, in this because I, I think too, just just including people from different cultures and backgrounds, even on your team, no matter the not like even outside of gender is the fact that you can get so much extra insight from just like, you know, just getting their thoughts about something, right? And it's mind-blowing how different something can be represented or thought of in another part of the world that you would never even think about. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Like, everyone everyone grows up differently, you know? Everyone has a, a different kind of culture in their lives and a different kind of perspective, and um, and that adds to any product being created. You know, I, I 100% agree with you. It, it, it's interesting. Like, just I've been in the software space kind of on the design side for a couple of decades now. And I, like, I've been at startups and kind of sold startups before. And it's interesting because just going to different people on your team from different backgrounds and saying, like, what do you think of this? Like, what does this mean to you? How does this look and feel for you? Or like, you know, if we try to translate it to another language or it, you read it from right to left instead of left to right. Like, is it readable? Does it make sense to you? Like, and as somebody that basically only speaks one language, English, I, I, I can't really even be the best judge of like, if in another language that reads from right to left and the interface works, like I could take my best guess. It seems to work, but you need somebody that actually knows, right. To just even give yeah. you proper feedback on some of that stuff. Yeah. And I think about it too. And, um, you know, like we'll invest in a luxury market. Okay. And I really love products that appeal to everyone. Sure. So, you know, I'll say to the CEO, Hey, have you thought of, you know, launching another product within this company that is affordable to everyone? Or like, 
how, you know, the best companies have a product that is affordable to everyone um, and especially in consumer. And so I think about it that way where it's like, okay, you're catering to this one individual, like let's think even bigger and figure out how to cater to everyone. Um, And I think, you know, if you grew up one way, you may only understand that consumer instead of thinking about all of them. And so I think you should build your team accordingly and figure out who can poke holes in your business luxury or not. And, um, it just, it only makes it better. 100%. Today's show is brought to you by FreshBooks, an all-in-one small business invoicing and accounting solution. I've been using FreshBooks for over a decade to send estimates for time and expense tracking, sending invoices, and collecting payments online. Then at tax time, I just generate a report that can be sent off to an accountant. To get a free trial of FreshBooks, please go to buildingthefutureshow.com slash FreshBooks. So I'm curious to know how involved or kind of hands-off are you guys, or does it really depend on the company you guys are investing in? Oh my gosh, such a good question because too involved? Like, I think I'm too involved. No, okay. it's just like a we, in the early stages, they call you for everything. So I, I joke that we're the 24-hour hotline, and I feel... <laughs> Like I, I try to be as helpful and involved as I can. We don't take a ton of board seats um, because we just don't have the time and um, we're still a fairly small team and um, just in terms of 55 companies. And so, but we try to stay on top of everything. You know, I do feel like I have companies like one just called me while I was uh, doing this with you. So um, they're, they're calling all the time for everything. And I love it because I like staying close to it and, you know, sort of, I like to keep an eye on what our money is doing, et cetera. Sure. Um, but um, we're, we try to be helpful. You know, I think there's a type of investor who is involved and not helpful. And then we know what our strengths are, which is like marketing and PR and getting products out there. We're very helpful with hiring and we're very helpful with fundraising. Um, and so those are our three major strengths. And while we try to help with everything else, um, we we try to stay focused on those categories. And then when I do take board seats, I make sure that I can add value to that company. And I usually set it up so I can roll off at a certain point. Um, but um, also when I realize I'm no longer adding value uh, and they feel like they're set up to really rock, I will roll off as well. Interesting. No, that's, that's cool that you are, are willing to do that because some – Investors are, are definitely not, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. There's There are a few boards that I sit on that I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I don't know how we get you off, but maybe we should. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. That I, I love the honesty. I, I think that's, that's – no, I no, – to be fair, but I think people may feel that way about me too. You know, it's like you you want the best board you can, but I think ultimately what everyone needs to be doing is supporting the CEO and – as an investor, I'm always looking at the greater trends um, and the macro trends in terms of what's working for a business. And I feel like that's what I always try to point out is like, hey, you know, the numbers aren't reflecting market or, hey, we need to like cut costs here because you're spending a lot here and that typically doesn't work. It'll implode if you don't change this. Um, and so I think you just try to be as helpful as you can, but it's hard to be a board member it's really, really hard. And I think people don't realize like your, 
everyone today is like, how do I get on boards? How do I get on boards? And I'm like, that is so great. You want to get on a board. Let's think about what your strengths are and then figure out how to make yourself appealing to that company and why you'd be a fit because you need to bring a lot to the table. And also you, you know, most of the boards I sit on, it's like you want to be friends with the founder, but as an investor, there's this divide, but then as a board member, there's a real divide because you're the one who has to turn the mirror around and say, hey, look, you're not doing so well. And I'm going to point out all your flaws up close and personal. And it's really hard. I've had some really tough moments on boards and tough conversations, both in companies doing poorly and companies doing incredibly well, you know? And you, you like, I don't know, some days I'm like, I'm just embodying bad cop and this is their baby. So they take it very personally. Every single founder says things to me like, we can't cut our head count. I can't operate with that few people. And I'm constantly like, but you can, I assure (laughs) you, you can. And, you know, it's, they take it so personally. Sometimes there's low blows and you just have to be this like bulletproof uh, investor, friend, confidant, but really you, you need to look at it as like you have a fiduciary responsibility to your investors and the investors in the company. And so you need to watch out for that um, money. And so that's what you have to do. You're not there to be their friend. Sure. But I also think too, eventually majority of those people figure out that you had their best interest at heart, especially when you come out of a a tough conversation, like they need to downsize or do something differently, or they're not doing so well. I I think it's coming from a place where you're actually really caring and trying to help them out. Right. And I think eventually most people figure that out. Do you agree with that? I hope so. But I do, I do feel like they're so, it's so they're so close to it. And what I found with founders in general, and just, you know, this is my own personal data collection. I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. Um, They see their company and maybe a little bit of their industry, but they don't see anything else. Uh And so I have to point out things to them like, Hey, um, I know you thought you were this like beautiful, unique butterfly. And I think you are, but you need to grow faster because look, you weren't even aware of these five other companies doing the exact same thing. So how are we going to stand out and continue to grow? And it's funny because they can't sort of see beyond. um, It's like they're seeing inside their box because they're working their butts off and they're grinding and they're trying to make this thing happen. But often they don't get out and see uh, the macro picture, which is what I think venture capitalists in general are very good at is identifying those trends and knowing, okay, Hey, based on the market and this industry, there's a lot of opportunity to sell now in a year, this is going to be very different. Maybe we should sell this company now. Um, and I think you think about things like that and you think about, okay, they're blowing so much cash. How do we, pull it back and you tell them they have to cut half their headcount. And I think you're right. I think you're right. Like down the road, they'll thank you. But in the moment, sure, it, in the moment like, for sure. Yeah. It's like peeling away their first child. And it's like, 
every founder says the same thing. And then they like try to like go through your resume and tell you why you're not qualified enough to make these decisions. (laughs) And you're like, actually, I sold five companies just like this already. So I'm aware of how this works. And, you know, it's so hard. I think these are things that people, wow, I didn't expect to like be so intense and personal about this. But I think it is really hard to be a board member. And I Interesting. I think it's important as an investor, like especially if you have a large investment in there or there are young founders and need to be held accountable. I mean, there's a few real reasons you should sit on the board. But um, it's like, I think that's what people need to realize is like, if you like the founder and that's why you want to sit on the board, that is not the reason because you are not going to be there for that <laughs> when they're running out of money. It's actually really good advice though. Like I think a lot of people think of it as like, I'm just helping out a friend and this is going to be awesome and we're going to be super successful and everybody's going to be happy, but you're right. Like, yeah, I think a lot of people go in with kind of rose colored glasses sometimes being a board member. So I'm glad you're being uh, brutally honest about it. I I love that. I I think it's great because not a lot of people are right. It's, it's surprising. Um, yeah, or maybe like right now I'm on some boards that I'm like, this is grueling. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, but, but I'm curious, you mentioned you guys are good at like marketing and PR. How do you guys help your investments with that stuff? Do you have an uh, internal team that helps with that? Do you recommend agencies they work with? Do you help them hire internally or, or how does that work? All of the above. Okay. Um, we also have great relationships. We're based in LA. I come from media. We have a huge list that we're very close with. Um, we also have great marketing strategies that we can flesh out for people. We're very, um, we have a whole sort of influencer um, incubator where we have great relationships and we can kind of organically plug them in. So um, any which way to get a product out there, we really try to be the most knowledgeable about that. And so, um, you know, based in LA, it's like, this is the best place for consumer technologies in general, uh, because if you have a great product, there is so much opportunity to get it out there. So we really try to stay plugged in in terms of um, press all the way to celebrity uh, partnerships and um, just try to kind of like, you know, keep our finger on the pulse in terms of new marketing techniques. Interesting. And I've heard a number of years ago, and I wonder if it was ever true and is Sure, like obviously Silicon Valley has a ton of of companies, but in LA, there's a lot more people basically trying to generate income as fast as possible. Where I think in Silicon Valley, it's well, we'll figure out the revenue model or the sorry, the monetization model a bit later. Where like I've heard in LA, people seem to try to monetize faster and it's more top of mind. Is that fair to say, or or just based on your previous comment? I hope that's true. Okay, fair enough. So <laughs> I do. It's funny because I feel like yesterday someone told me about some company in San Francisco that they were like, they've been at it for three years. You know, they have like Excel as an investor and they still don't have a product. And I'm like, what? Like, how did they even get Excel to invest? Sure. Um, and so, you know, I look at it like that where, yeah, I, I do think in terms of, well, there are some cases where I understand why investors invest pre-product and pre-kind of business model, sure. which would be maybe they're a second time founder and they had a big first exit and you trust that they'll figure it out um, and you just want to keep betting on that same you know team or what have you. But I do believe like you better, 
you best have a business model in the beginning. Sure. <laughs> I like to see how you're going to make money. <laughs> no, 100%. Um, and I think there's there's opportunities like data companies that sometimes take a lot longer to kind of like flush out the business model. But I do think, uh, yeah, I think in LA, well, because it's consumer, probably sure. there's usually, you know, that's a very simple model. You sell something, you know, you sell a product to a consumer. Sometimes you also sell B2B and that's really the dream. hundred percent. So you mentioned earlier, you'll invest kind of across the country. Do you expect your, uh, founders or the team to actually move to California or do you not care or what are your thoughts on? No. Okay. No. And, you know, I think, you know, I just want to make sure that they're all under one roof and, uh, working hard wherever they are. And, you know, we travel a lot too, so we'll go visit them and, um, they'll come visit us. So I think, uh, no, you, you can be wherever we invest, wherever. Sure. Well, and I also think too domestically, we haven't gone international yet. Okay. No, that was going to be my next question to you, but I'm curious then. I think it's also just that there's so much talent outside of the Valley and Los Angeles that it probably gives you almost a bit of an edge too, that you, you can, you know, in the middle of the country or somewhere else, maybe that's not known as a tech hub, has they still have a lot of really good talent, right? And and maybe that team is spread out in four or five different states, but you know, trying to potentially get them all to move to California may or may not even be within the cards of those people that work there, right? Yeah, I mean, I I would hope that like wherever the team was, they were all, especially in the early stages, they should all be in the same place. But okay. um, we've had situations like that where they're like, well, one of us is here, one of us is in another state, one of us is in another state, and we won't invest because in the beginning, it's like you need to live and breathe this thing and all be together. Um, and so we, I do want to make sure they're in the same city. However, they don't need to be in my city, you know. Okay. Um, and then when I think about investing across the country, like there is, you know when you invest in California, I mean, especially today, your money does not go as far as it will in other places in the country. Right. And the valuations are better in other places in the country. And, um, you know, personally, in terms of investing my capital, I've been trying to get it out of California, because California is so expensive right now. Um, so we actually are seeking cities across the country to find uh, great talent and better valuations and, um, you know, great technology. And I think there's a few things that go into it. That said, you know, we do invest obviously the majority in <laughs> California, but we're always like looking for new cities. And um, there, I think there's a few things that make a great tech ecosystem. And one is a university and two is like one or a handful of corporations. And so you look across the country and, you know, we have a great company in Atlanta. Coca-Cola is based there. We have, um, you know, a company in Chicago and, you know, in Chicago, our, our money goes a lot farther than it would here and the valuations are lower there. Um, and those are just trends that we're seeing. They change by day, but um, those are things we definitely take into account. And um, I think, you know, I encourage people to invest across the country for sure. Sure. So if people actually want to pitch you guys, is there a specific way they need to do that? Is it just referral? Can they just email you? Walk us through that. 
You know, I think um, we are very accessible uh, online. So you go halogenvc.com and uh, you can fill out a form. You can find me on Instagram, Jesse C. Draper. Um, You can, you know, email me. You can LinkedIn message me. I mean, we are very, very accessible um, in terms of getting a hold of us. I try never to like referrals are great. And I obviously pay attention to them, but not everybody knows me and I don't expect them to. And I think that everyone should have a fair shot in terms of getting investment for their company. So we look at everything from cold emails to uh, referrals. And I think we try to kind of have a good random sample. We actually, um, you know, call in uh, 10 to 15 companies every two weeks to pitch and, um, sometimes these are people we, you know, they were cold emails and we had a quick call with them and we really try to meet with as many, we try to give as many people a shot as we can, because, you know, the best companies, you never know where they're going to come from. No, I, I think that's, that's great. Cause I, I do find some venture firms, there's this whole process and you need to be referred and it's, and I'm not saying you obviously people jump through those hoops to get to whoever they need to at that firm, but in some cases, like, well, when I emailed you, you emailed me personally back within like a, a couple hours. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, I'm super, I usually it comes from an assistant, right? Days later. So, like, even yeah. just testament, my own testimonial to you is like, you actually do get back to people and you got back to me like really quickly. Oh, that makes me happy. I'm so, so sorry it took so long to do it. But I also have like a real just soft spot for, any talk show because I ran a talk show for so long and it is so tough to get those guests. And so I always am like, I am happy to do it because I know how difficult it is to get great guests. And so I do always try to like make those things happen, Um, especially when people are just getting going and, you know, have an idea for a show or whatever. So I think that is probably what caught my eye where I'm like, Oh yes, like you have a show. Great. Um, so I, I do always try to support because I come from media and it's like such a process as you know, you know, reaching out and booking and like crafting the conversation, which you're doing a great job, by the way, if you wanted feedback. I I appreciate Um, that, but no, that's, that's awesome. (laughs) No, that's, no, it's cool. Right. Cause it, it does help when you interview people like yourself that have actually done it or are still doing it. Because yeah, you're right. They, some, there's a bunch of challenges around this that, that people don't really realize. But I really want to maybe cover a few companies that you have maybe recently invested in or, or you want to talk a little bit about just to kind of close out the show. Yeah, I mean, we have great companies. Um, I'm really proud of our founders. They're incredible. We invest in, um, you know, we have consumer technology companies from fashion all the way to um, healthcare and um we have a great um you know something i'm excited about right now is we have this great transportation company called hop skip drive they started as a sort of like an uber type service for families in childcare, but it's different um you can it's the only service that fingerprints their drivers so they're much safer um and they can transport children and you can schedule it and so it makes you know carpools and things like that much easier um and that's going great it's all over the west coast and they then um launched a they really got me thinking differently because joanna the founder 
is an incredible woman and she built this great business and the LA city foster care system reached out to her and said, Hey, you know, we'd love you guys to provide our transportation for the foster kids in um, LA. And so they launched this account with the LA foster care system. And um, it's a large account and it's really exciting to work with them. And they've since launched 10 cities across the country doing the same thing. Now, Providing transportation for foster kids is so important and it's government provided. These kids cannot even attend an event where they might, you know, learn something or see a speaker or they can't attend any event unless they have government provided transportation. And so um, they now are able to provide that for them in a safe way. And there's other cool things like in LA, you're stuck in traffic all the time. Sometimes kids, Um, As devastating as it is, um, foster kids will be split up and put into different homes, but they have a rule now that they have to continue to attend the same school if they're siblings. So with um, Hop, Skip, Drive, they can also coordinate transport of siblings together to school, which is just it's just like an important thing, clearly keeping families together. Um, And so. So I love companies like that, that one, they're solving a government inefficiency um, and two, they're making an impact and three, they're making a ton of money (laughs) and that makes me really happy. And so I started thinking about um, the government as a customer. The government is a bigger customer than the Fortune 500 companies combined and it's so inefficient and the technology exists to make it more efficient. So I'm really targeting companies now that can solve these government inefficiencies. This is one of many verticals we're looking at, um, but I see a real opportunity there in the next 10 years to um, you know, change something and make all of our lives more efficient. And so since then we've invested in a company called Binti that, um, that's putting uh, adoption, adding more transparency to adoption and foster care online and helping match families. And they've Great. created this software to better match families. And I think, you know, people don't realize, people think if you want to make an impact, you have to do, you know, run a nonprofit. Um, And I completely believe the opposite. I think there are opportunities for nonprofits. There's reasons to raise money for nonprofits, but I believe you can make a bigger impact as a for-profit company. Um, And, you know, you can figure out a sustainable business model and give back while you do it. And so, now I'm actually targeting companies in not too highly regulated industries where the government uh, can be a customer and we can solve a government inefficiency. And I hope to make all of our lives a little easier. No, that's that's very cool. Those are those are those are amazing. But I'm curious. Then, would you ever come up with a business? And if none of the companies you guys have invested in, um, are, it's just not a fit for them, or they don't have time, or whatever. Would you basically put out a call for a founder to say, hey, we want to start this. Are you guys interested in that? Have you ever thought about doing that? Yeah. I mean, one of those falls within this government thing. I have been dying to create a police report app where you and I can fill a police report out on an app and it plugs into all the police departments and we help source, um, you know, basically data for the police. Like we help solve crimes that they don't need to be on the street for such as credit card theft or what have you. It's like, if you see, you know, or even like, okay, three people reported a robbery on this street corner, like, and there's multiple videos that are geolocated and like tagged. Like 
the computer should be able to solve some of these crimes because sure. I think the police have a, a lot of other work to do and shouldn't be dealing with things like credit card theft, et cetera. So like, that's an example of something I've been looking for for a long time and haven't quite found the one. Um, that's right. I have about 50 revenue streams uh, that are opportunities for this particular app. And um, so send me those, everyone. Send me those. <laughs> that, no, that's amazing. Yeah, I, we I would love incubate that. it. No, that's interesting because, again, like most VCs would be like, that's a nice idea. You come to us when you're making a ton of money and then we'll put in money. It's like, well, then I don't need you. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I mean, I've been looking for engineers just to build it because I feel like I just I don't have time. But we're really, you know, as a VC, we're looking to solve problems. Sure. Um, I think those are real opportunities. And there's so many issues within the government and the police. You know, I talked to the chief chief of police in the Santa Monica um, police department. And um, she said that I said, what kind of technologies are you using? And they really don't have a ton. They have cameras now on their suit, you know, on their um, uniforms, but they don't have a uh, technology like this where you could kind of look up an address and be like, Oh, weird. Like they've reported these three things or um, there should be a better system for sourcing this information because today we have the ring camera. We have next door. I mean, these right. crimes like can solve themselves um, and we can create kind of a safer community. So I always think about like the ring camera. I don't know if anyone has that, but it's, um, sure. it's a camera doorbell and you know, it like my neighbors and things have solved crimes because they saw that the same guy or woman, cause I always, I'm like, I don't know, there's a girl gang who robbed some store by us recently. Um, but they, they um, like saw that this one guy had robbed uh, a couple houses within one community. And so then they were able to kind of like bring that to the police, but this should all be auto done, like done yeah. automatically. Yeah, no, I, I a hundred percent agree, but we're kind of coming to the end. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about you guys and any other link you want to mention? Yeah, halogenvc.com and then Jesse C. Draper on Instagram. And um, we, um, yeah, we're looking for great consumer technologies. There has to be a woman in the founding team of five. We have 55 great portfolio companies and um, we hope to invest in your next business. Perfect, Jesse. Well, this has been amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Yeah, no, this was so fun. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a good rest of your day, and we'll talk soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.